Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 199. One episode away from 200. That will drop next week. Uh, it's already recorded. It's a great conversation, and uh, you should tune in because it's going to be a, a good time. But today, we're talking to Lisa Sharon Harper, who wrote a book called Fortune, uh, How Race Broke My Family and the World and how to repair it all. And uh, if you're like me, and you like received a, what I would call, whitewashed version of history, what I mean by that is history is always told by the winners. The winners write the books. And so the winners can decide what goes into the book, what gets left out of the book. And uh, Lisa talks about a lot of things that I did learn growing up in the book, but she also addresses a lot of things that were not in history books that I came across in middle school, high school, college. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. Uh, what she's done is she's taken the story of her family. She, she researched back multiple generations. Every chapter is like about a different person. And she weaves the story of history into what she learned about these family members and it's just mind-blowing it's like it's not like you're sitting down reading a history book it's like you're sitting down reading the story of somebody's life the story of somebody's family and history is woven into it and it just brought so many things to light for me that i didn't know before and it's such a good book and i've got to read it again because it's one of those books that it's a it's a it's an easy read, so to speak, because it's it's literally she's just telling you the story of her family, uh, weaving history into it. But it's a hard read because there's so much there that I didn't know. A lot of new information in there, a lot of words I had to look up that I didn't know. Uh, but I learned a lot. I feel like it stretched me a lot. And uh, this is a really good conversation. Uh, heads up, though, uh, I had to do some, I don't know, as fancy of editing as I know how to do. Uh, because we had a couple things going on while we were talking. Number one, uh, Lisa has a dog, and uh, the dog was barking and wanted to, her to uh, play with the dog, and the dog was like tugging on. She had like a rope in her hand at one point. We we're on video. She had like a rope in her hand at one point, and she was like pulling with the dog, and uh, so that was going on. And then my daughter was upstairs. Um, something was going on with her. I think they were my my wife and her were baking cookies. They were watching a show. And Jordan, my daughter, got like very excited, <laughs> was talking very loud. And if you ever have been around a toddler, you have a toddler, she's she's turned five. Uh, once they get excited about something, <laughs> full speed ahead. And so that's what was going on. So I tried my best to cut some different things out. Parts of the conversation might seem like they jump from one thing to another, but I tried to blend things together as well as I could, so my apologies, but I, I don't think you probably wouldn't even notice if I didn't say anything, but for those of you who do notice those things, uh, my apologies. I'm not a professional editor. I try to do my best uh, with the time that I have and the software I have and the limited knowledge base that I have, uh, but I did my best here. I think the hardest one I ever had to do, reflecting now, was with Shane Claiborne uh, because he was in uh, Tennessee trying to uh, get a guy off of death row who was scheduled to be put to death uh, by the death penalty. And he wanted to talk to me. He, he didn't want to postpone our thing. I'm like, dude, you have much more important things to worry about than me. And he's like, no, 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 I want to do this. He went into a coffee shop 
and it was like really busy and he was on his Apple headphones and uh, that was rough, but I tried to work my magic there too, but this was not nearly as hard as that. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm excited about the conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, pick up Lisa's book. You will not be sorry. I put it in the show notes along with my book, Rethinking Everything, uh, available on Amazon. It's the story of my spiritual journey uh, from very black and white fundamentalist thinking to this wild world of color that I'm in uh, these days. Patreon, buy me a coffee, two places to go to support the show financially. I'll put those links in the show notes as well. Uh, but all I have to say, that's it. That's all I got. Episode number 199 with Lisa Sharon Harper. Enjoy. The patience paid off, now it's go time. Go time. The worries all around me, I'ma give mine. Born in the Queen City, got the 4-9. Go to Green Trip, told me where the cosign. So people doubted me, that's close to me, that's their regret. When I make it, I'ma take it, all I do is rest. Remain grind self-care, that's when I'm at my best. A little crazy, that's when I'm at a test. Fill it too. Yeah, we riding, yeah, we rolling. All the way to the ocean, uh. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with Lisa Sharon Harper to talk about her brand new book called Fortune, uh, subtitled How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. And so Lisa, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's truly an honor to share this space with you. Thank you so much, Glenn. It's like, it's so exciting to be in this conversation with you and your listeners. And I'm, I'm really excited because of who your listeners are, that they are people who are truly seeking um, and have realized that, you know, some things are not adding up. So let's talk about that. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I have a, I, I wish we had about three hours, maybe more. <laughs> so I think we have a lot of, we have a lot of ground that we, that we can cover. Uh, but before we jump into the book, maybe take a few moments to talk to us about yourself, especially for people who maybe aren't too familiar with you and your work. Um, who are you and what do you do? Kind of the drive-by of uh, Lisa Sharon Harper. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of funny because honestly, it's hard for me to do a drive-by and especially with this book, because the book is about who I am. So you ask me that question and I start talking about it. <laughs> Give the me book. the whole book in 30 seconds. <laughs> in 30 seconds, in 30 seconds, I am the, I am the daughter of Sharon Lawrence Harper and the daughter of Dennis Weeks. And my ancestry reaches back to 1682 land at least. And that's not counting the people who might've been indigenous on this land. Mm -hmm. And um, we have been resistors and we have been rebellers. And we have also been people of very deep faith throughout that entire time who passed on resilience strategies throughout, throughout our, our time here on this land. But we reach yeah. back beyond the slave ship to the Hausa and the Europa people. Mm -hmm. And my, my vocation in the world, um, has been to be a storyteller and to create the story, to actually help shape the story that we're living um, through movement and through um, through resistance and through action and advocacy. So uh, for, for many years, for the last, at least the last decade, um, I've been uh, actually more than a decade, really last decade and a half, I've been working in the arena of, um, of advocacy and organizing people of faith, yeah. first in New York City and then in Washington, DC, and now really literally global. And um, uh, definitely throughout the United States through Freedom Road. So we're a consulting group. And we specialize in shrinking the gap between our narratives, um, and, uh, and and as a result, helping us to make progress doing justice 
that doesn't have to come and come back on itself and re retread the same ground in the next generation. Yeah, I love that. And, and what you said about being a storyteller is so true because when I picked up the book and I started reading, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a memoir. This, you know, this is going to be like, a, this is going to be Lisa's life story, which essentially it is a lot of that. And it's also the obvious story of your family, but then you also weave in history and it's the like, oh, like race. now I'm getting yeah. a history lesson <laughs> as well. Yeah. And you really, you really told the story and that really mm-hmm. draw me, drew me into it because I'm not, I don't like sitting down and reading a history book. I wasn't, that's never been my, mm-hmm. my thing. But if you put the story in front of me and you tell me what this story, this person's story has to do with history, now you've got my attention and that's exactly what you mm-hmm. did. So well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That was literally the thought. Like I literally had that thought, like, you know, the book is really about, it's really ultimately a call to repair what race broke in the world. Yeah. And, um, but it's, it's much less effective to do that and just straight prose. Here are my three points yep. rather than to place it in the context of story. Yep. And I had been researching my family's story for 30 years. Yeah. And, um, when I realized that the person fortune game McGee was, um, lived in 1680, she was born in 1687 and her body absorbed the wrath of those very first round of race laws in Maryland. And that, that was, those laws came two years after, after Virginia. I said, wait a minute. And as I did a bunch of the other research, I realized all every single generation, because we've been here for a while, we we interacted with the laws that created race. So I thought, you know, this is more than just my story. This is America's story, the story of race in America, and it needs to be written down. So that's why I wrote Fortune. Amen. Amen. And uh, in the book, it took you, from what I understand about, I mean, this is 30 years of your work into Mm -hmm. this 200 plus page page book. And so maybe I don't even know where to start. I just want you to maybe wade us into these waters a little bit. Like if you you had to talk to somebody about this book and just kind of bring them into it, uh, give them the the pitch. <laughs> what, what, what is this book about? Uh, maybe take us into it a little bit. Yeah, it's actually 340 years of my family history on the soil yeah. um, from, from today going all the way back to 1682. Yeah. Um, and the whole point of it is to, is to, through the framework of my family, to help us understand how race broke the world and um, then to, to point the way towards how we can repair it. Mm. Um, so the first two parts of the book our chapters outlining different generations of my family and the laws interacted with and the impact of those laws on their lives. Mm-hmm. And the last piece of the book actually continues to weave their stories in, but it's mostly three essays about how, um, how do we repair it? Yeah. And those three essays are um, on truth-telling as, as reckoning, mm-hmm. um, reparation as repentance, and then finally, they, uh, forgiveness mm-hmm. unto the beloved community. Yeah. And I think that that last section is huge because you don't, you don't get that in a lot of books. A lot of books present the problem. They might give a couple of things that are solution, but you really do a lot of work in terms of helping the reader understand like this, let's lay it out. This is what needs to be done. If we're going to repair the damage that has been done. And this is what you can do to play a part in that. And I think that's super, super helpful. Exactly. Thank you so much for recognizing that. Appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. So you went back, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's 10 generations, right? In the book. Yes. Yeah. 10 generations. Yeah. So if you go back like 10 generations of your family and you're, you're researching all these different people, I'm, I'm really curious, like of all the research that you've done, of all the stories that you've come across, uh, all the things that you learned, what was like your biggest aha moment when you were doing your research mm. and doing your writing? Like what's something that 
came up that maybe you didn't know about your family beforehand. Mm-hmm. And maybe that thing that really, maybe even, even so much more like lit that fire inside of you to write this book and to do this wow. work. Well, I'll tell you the biggest aha moment was fortune. I mean, yeah. that was, and it was also the hardest work mm-hmm. and it continues to this day. I mean, I think that going back that far is kind of crazy. It is. <laughs> and honestly, it's not really even possible, really. Um, it, it's very, very incredibly hard to do by DNA, right? But especially yeah. if for us, we don't have all of the necessary um, people alive to be able to trace the DNA today. Yeah. And DNA, I'm told, only goes back like five to seven generations. That's really accurate. And after that, it gets kind of shady. And we're talking 10 generations, right? Yeah. So um, so what we've been able to do, though, is we've been able to trace up to the fifth and sixth generation in the DNA mm-hmm. and around the clusters of, of their family members, the family members that lived around in that time mm-hmm. and say, yep, we are definitely connected people. We're still not like we couldn't say like, you know, definitively as in like, <laughs> you know, Hey, I'm willing to be shot on the firing line. If this is not true, I'm not willing to do that. (laughs) But what I am am willing to say, what I am willing to say is that there have been several people who I've connected to who, who we do share DNA um, or who we share ancestry. And I know that I have the same ancestry as them because I do share DNA with other people who have that same ancestry. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of, um, that's been the hardest. That was the hardest thing to do. Was to was to go dive deep into into Fortune's story, but actually something that was true about the writing of of this book is that every single chapter was really hard. Every yeah, chapter, which is why imagine. it took me four years to write, um, yeah. hard for different reasons. Right? It was Fortune's chapter was incredibly difficult because of how far back it went and getting the records, and then not really knowing that part of the history. So having to go to the land where it happened and read the wills and read read the, the land deeds and go to the land to see exactly how they might have been living. And it really was eye-opening. But yeah. then, you know, when you get up into the, the 20th century stories, the story of my mother in particular, I mean, it's, it's my mom, right? Yeah. And she's telling me these stories that I've never heard before in my interview with her, which would lasted days. Um, and that was emotionally hard to take. Mm-hmm. And, and then my own story, like I know all of my story. I know all decades long of it, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you actually shape a story in 10 pages or 15 pages that took 10 or not 10, ten tens of decades to live, right? Sure. So not tens of decades. <laughs> that would <laughs> right. get over 100 years old. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? A lot of decades. decades to live. <laughs> right. How do you do that? So so that was also difficult. Yeah. But but I found at every step that the story the story made itself known. Mm-hmm. The story revealed itself the heart of the story revealed itself at every turn. And for Fortune, the heart of the story is that moment when she stands in court and is indentured. And we have to understand how is this happening? And the how it relates right back to those very first race laws. For my mom, the heart of the story um, is the, the way that she learned was less than in, in, in her school, through her school, learned that she was less than um, less than a white person, less than who are created to rule in this world. And she was not created to rule. She was created to support it through, through being a secretary or, or maybe even going to jail and how she resisted it by joining SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and 
um, and her stories there and how that intersects with SNCC's work in the same year um, with the Meredith March and Black Power and all of that. So it's it was really, it was all of it. I mean, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to pin down yeah. what my favorite thing was, but I think that the, the thing that the aha was the through line, right? The through lines of resistance and the through lines of um, probably the greatest aha, the through line of the fact that in every single generation laws were created in order not to, not to subjugate people, but in order to establish, protect and entrench the supremacy of white men. Mm-hmm. And it was explicit at first and has become implicit, but it's still happening to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you give us some, some examples of that? Because I think, I think for, yeah. for me and for my listeners, like I, I mentioned before we hit record that. I know I'm realizing a lot of my listeners have reached out to me into the same that we're realizing what a whitewashed version of history we've been given. And so we hear, mm-hmm. we hear things like what you just said, we hear people say those things, but I don't always, we don't always get the, the hard examples of what that has looked like throughout history and how mm-hmm. that's even happening to this day. Because I feel like we really we receive so much information from the media, <laughs> and you don't know you don't know what in the world is what sometimes. So I think if you could give us some concrete examples of what that looks like, that would be super helpful. Absolutely. Well, um, let, let's go all the way back and then go forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we go back. We go all the way back. We go back in 1619. The the warship, the White Lion, sailed into the port at Port Comfort, Point Comfort. Um, outside of Jamestown, Virginia, which is, it's actually now known as Hampton, Virginia. That's where they, they, they docked and they deboarded 12, sorry, 20 um, Angolan men who had been pirated off of a death ship headed to Mexico to make, to um, enslave these men, 20 and uh, 20 and odd Angolan men. So they, when they got off that ship, those um, John Rolfe, the, the captain, John Rolfe and the leader of the colony, he had a choice. He could have said, no, turn these people back. We don't, we don't have slaves here. And they didn't. They had not had one African slave up to that point. We don't, we don't do that here. We're, gonna, we're not going to do that. Um, that's if they wanted to be fully just. If they wanted to be like justice light or injustice light, they could have said, okay, we're going to indenture these people or we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to have them work for us for a fee. That would be justice light, right? Not sending them back to where they live, but having them work for a fee, that's justice light. Um, injustice light would be we're going to indenture these people and then they can they can be set free you know after a while um total like complete uh, um, oppression is enslavement mm-hmm. most of these people were indentured but some of them were enslaved and most of them when they were set free um were they continued in people's service because they didn't really have a place in the society yeah. um and so what was what they choose they chose to keep the people and exploit them for their labor. That's what they chose. They didn't have to make that choice. In 1662, um, actually to go back, 1630, a black woman was was born. She was actually half black and half white. She was the daughter of Thomas Key, who at one point in his life was actually um, a a member of the House of Burgesses, Mm. meaning he was a part of the legislature of the colony of Virginia, which was a British colony. And in 1650, she realized something. I don't know how she realized it, but she realized, whoa, something's up here. My dad is an English citizen. 
And according to English law, you're not supposed to be able to enslave English citizens. And the, the citizenship status is determined through the line of the father. Therefore, I am an English citizen. And he had me baptized and recognized as his daughter. So I really should not be able to be, to be enslaved. So she took her case to court and won in 1650. And a flood of other, other um, enslaved people followed her saying, you know what? My pappy is, is an English citizen too. He raped my mama. And so here I am. Yeah. And I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. So at that point, the House of Burgesses had a, had a choice. They could say, you know what? We have so many mixed race children here who, whose fathers are British citizens and they are winning their cases now in court. We're just going to phase out this enslavement thing and we're going to go back to injustice light. We're going to go back to indenture. And by the way, lest you think indenture is like nothing, it's just like work with it with a limit. It's not. It is actually like slavery. They chopped people's feet off. They, they quartered people. They whipped people for, for any infraction. So indenture was like slavery. The only difference was that it had a time limit, right? Mm. So we could have, they, they could have just gone to a, an indentured servitude model and then let these people phase into being free and working for, for fee, right? They didn't do that. Instead, what they did was they chose their own benefit because they were the planter class. They were losing their free labor. And they said, we need to keep our profit margin large. So what they do, they shifted where citizenship came from. No longer would it come through the line of the father. Now it would come through the line of the mother. So they could rape their enslaved women in perpetuity and, and gain free labor. Because what they said is your children shall be enslaved in perpetuity. In other words, if you are a slave, if the mother is a slave, then to the thousandth generation, her children will be enslaved and beyond. Wow. That's in perpetuity. Yeah. That's how race-based slavery was created. Now, two years after that, Maryland created its first race law. And that's where Fortune was born, just 23 years after they created their first race law. In Maryland, though, the perceived, um, the perceived uh, incident or problem, because all law is created in response to a perceived problem on the ground. It's not created just because somebody said, oh, that's a good idea, right? So the perceived problem on the ground was the problem of um, white women falling in love with and marrying enslaved African men. Mm. And they said, oh, we can't have that and having children by them. And that pre presented two major problems to the planter class, which was also the legislating class, the members of the General Assembly in, uh, in, in Maryland. The first problem was it really kind of rubbed their ego, right? These white women marrying enslaved black men, they would rather marry a slave, marry an enslaved human being rather than marry a, a white slave owner or yeah. a white indentured man. Whoa, like that just... It, did not sit well with them. Yeah. Secondly, all the mixed race kids that were coming from these unions were confusing this racial construct that they had created and they were following. So here was what they did. They could have said, you know what? We are going to phase out this indentured thing and we're just going to go fee for service. We're going to have a fully open society where everybody is, everybody is equal and everybody is working for a fee. And, you know, yes, our, our profit margin is going to go down at first, but now we're going to have people who have more money so they can spend it in the market. And so actually our market, our profit margin will go up eventually because there'll be more in the economy. That's what they could have chosen, but they didn't. Instead, 
what they did was they, they, they created this edict. This was the very first race law in the second colony in Maryland. If any white woman marries and has children by an enslaved black man, she herself shall be enslaved to her husband's master until her husband's death and her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. There's two words again in perpetuity. Yeah. So again, that's how race-based slavery is crafted. Now, by the time that fortune is born in um, 1687, this law has already gone through a couple of different iterations. And they kind of, they, they, they in, actually in 1681, they kind of backed off of the whole white women and slave thing. And that was because of a personal favor to an indentured servant of um, Lord Baltimore. He was like, oh, you want to marry a slave black man named Charles? Um, okay, we'll, we'll have this, this law rescinded just for you. And unfortunately, it wasn't in time for her. So she actually still was enslaved and her children were enslaved for like three or four generations until the Revolutionary War. But then by 1705, when, when Fortune is standing in the courtroom and she now is being indentured, um, the law has morphed even more and has come to the place where the law has said, if your mother is a white woman, then you cannot be enslaved. But if your father is a black man, the implication of this law is that you definitely will be indentured. Mm. And wow. so you see there, it, the construct, it's, it's morphed, but it's beginning to solidify. And within years, it's just, it's just if you're black, you're enslaved, period. Yeah. And if you're mixed race, you're enslaved. And, and it gets to the point where if you've had an illegitimate child, with a white man, then you're, you will be indentured for seven years. This is Fortune's daughter was under this law and she was indentured for seven more years on top of the indenture she was given as a child. Mm. Um, but then your children will be indentured for 21 years if the father is white and 31 years if the father is black, right? Wow. So you start seeing explicitly the quote, what we, what white folks here hate this word, but you see it, it's like in black and white the privilege of yeah. whiteness yeah. in those first laws. Yeah. Yeah. Now, flash forward, and you know, after the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, you have nine great years of reconstruction, nine great years where more than 2,000 people of African descent are elected to public office throughout the South and the North, but especially in the South. Mm -hmm. There were lieutenant governors, there were senators and house representatives, there were judges, there were there were mayors, there were whole black towns that were incorporated. There was, I mean, this is a very big deal. And then the 1877 compromise happened. Northern whites made a deal with Southern whites in a backroom deal in order to settle a dispute in the 1876 election. They couldn't figure out who won, right? And to settle that, that dispute, the Democrats, the Northern Democrats, or I'm sorry, the Northern Republicans, forgive me, said at that time, um, tell you what, we will pull our federal troops out of the South if you allow our candidate to win the, the, the presidential election. So, you know, like the three-fifths compromise where three-fifths, two-fifths of our human humanity was bartered away by the North, um, this was now our safety is bartered away by the North in order to have the South play nice. So when, um, when they do that, 
that's when all hell breaks loose. That's when a Ku Klux Klan rises up again, actually, yeah. in, in full force. That's when you have the majority of your, of your lynchings are happening in the 20 years that follow that, mm -hmm. um, 20, 30 years. And then you also have a law that is passed in South Carolina, where my ancestors were enslaved and also now living through Reconstruction. The law that was passed was this. People of African descent can only serve, can only work in two industries, the fields or in the house, hmm. the field, field labor or domestic labor. Does that remind you of anything? They were trying to reinstate slaveocracy yep. at the fall of reconstruction. Hmm. So that then, they didn't have to do that. They could have said, okay, we will deal with our race problem in our way. And our way is going to be to integrate them into society and, and, to, and to actually um, help our own minds change, even according to our own faith. Our faith tells us all humanity is made in the image of God. We're going to work on seeing the image of God in our neighbors and our new neighbors here. Um, actually, they weren't so new. They've been there for 246 years at that point mm -hmm. or 256. So so, but they didn't. Instead, what they did was they dominated. They see, they sought to dominate in every single way through the law, through social, um, social requirements that mm -hmm. people of African descent step off the curb and walk in the gutter. And when a white person walks by in order to reinforce the hierarchy of human belonging, um, uh, through peonage, by putting people back on the farms and exploiting their labor in order to keep your profit margin well. Um, I think it was around 18, eight, by, by 18, the 1890s, um, Alabama had like 85% of its GDP coming from peonage, from black men swept off the streets for sitting on a park bench for too long, placed in prison. And that prison was the very same plantation they were just set free from and so and that went on for about another 100 years and actually is still happening to this day because of the 13th amendment loophole you know then you get into the 20th century and in in 1933 the housing um, the federal housing authority is established and when they are established it's a segregationist that actually is writing the policy and the policy they write in in um in 1935 is that if, a, if one black person lives in your community, the property value of your entire community goes down. So it's gonna naturally happen as a result of that. Redlining, now redlining actually had already been happening, but it went rampant at this point and it became federalized. The federal government drew red lines around, around black communities and said, blacks can only be sold housing here. And it was always in the most decrepit land. And it was always the most, land and neglected um, communities. And so, of course, then our property values did go down and our, and our education, the values of our education, particularly in the North, went down because how do we pay for education? Land taxes. So it's the, the, the inequity was baked into the system in the 20th century in terms of how we, how we do life together. Yeah. Um, and that has reverberating contact and com, um, uh, uh, impacts to this day. Mm. Um, people in my mother's generation, my mom was actually talking about this and I write about it in, in her chapter, the chapter of Sharon, that there are people in her generation who were, went to school in the North who have whole gaps in their education because 
their teachers didn't teach. Their teachers warehoused black kids and let them play and didn't actually seek to teach them. Um, so, you know, that's why you have gaps in education, not because people aren't smart, it's because they weren't taught. Yeah. Um, and now you have the, the common practice of eminent domain was the practice yeah. of cities and state governments taking over black people's communities <laughs> and, um, and paying pennies on the dollar for it so that they could not actually restore the value of the wealth that they lost from that land. Um, and, and then using that land, and it's still happening to this day, um, for, for public projects or for other private businesses that they want to go up, um, warehouses or, or, or office buildings, or in my case, in two different pieces um, on two different lines of my family, that land was, was um, seized by eminent domain, paid pennies on the dollar. My great-grandfather, Hiram Lawrence, owned a block of homes, not mm. just one. He owned several homes on a block. Actually, it was a whole, the whole, he owned the block. Mm. And um, that block of homes was seized by eminent domain and now is under the I-95. Wow. And a gas station. Wow. And that was a black community, mm. a community. And he used those houses, those homes to house people coming north in the great migration throughout mm. the whole um, you know, first half of the 20th century. And what the day, not the day, the year that that, that land was seized by eminent domain, he died. We mm. believe he died by broken heart. Mm. Wow. So there's real impacts, there's costs. Yeah. Finally, there's there's the, the drug wars. Look, we're, we're marching through history here, right? Yeah. Um, the drug wars, you have Nixon, President Nixon um, declares that, um, or decides that he's going to leverage um, this drug war, not actually to fight drugs. And you know, his legislative director Ehrlichman um, admitted this in a 1995 um, interview that was finally actually published in 2004. He said, Nixon declared the drug wars not to fight drugs, but rather to fight two of his political foes, black people and hippies. He said, if he could identify them as 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 the enemy, then he could justify going in and breaking up their communities by putting their people in jail, and that's exactly what he did. Yeah. And he pumped heroin into that I'm sitting in right now, Point Breeze, um, South Philadelphia. He pumped heroin into this community, um, and the, the young men who were singing "Do Up on the Corners" in the 50s and 60s um, suddenly were dropping like flies from overdoses of heroin. And my my uncle. Uncle Richie was one of them. And in the 80s, Ray did the same thing, the exact same thing. He pumped this community full of crack. And it was, a, it was someone addicted to crack who beat my mother to death, trying to bilk her for everything that she had. So the drug wars had consequences yeah. and they were waged for white men's gain. Mm. there's so there's so much there and I just I when I listen to you talk in my mind I'm I'm thinking back on my own education like I said I, I went to a private Christian school and I went to Bible college and seminary and all of the, the things regarding history it's like I I feel like my 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 version of history is is very off but also my, my version of the mm. present is also very off. And I feel like, mm. I know one of the big topics going around now is critical race theory and this 
idea of going back and really seeing, you know, where, where we're telling history wrong and retelling it and, and with more accuracy in the way that you're doing. And I feel like there's such a push against that. Like we, we live in the South, we live in North Carolina. And so that's one of the mm-hmm. big topics here. And there's so oh, many yeah. people who are against it, just so against it because, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna teach a wrong version of history. It's gonna teach the, the white kids to hate themselves and like that. But it's like, I don't, I, it's so hard for me to understand like why there's this, this, this push against really understanding the accuracy of things that happen because the, the version that you're telling us is, is people need to know this stuff and so many people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, my heart is like wrenched because I, I sit here and I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do to help, to help bring these things to light. And uh, yeah. I think that you, you can do, you actually have a lot you can do as mm-hmm. a person of European descent, who is a male, who is a yeah. man, yeah. you actually are in the best position to get something done. Mm. Um, you can do your own family history, first of all, yeah. and you can begin to own your own family history in public. You can begin to do the search. In what way was your, where was your family when all of this was happening? Yeah. Did they benefit from any of it? Mm-hmm. Were they on the side of those who were making these decisions mm-hmm. or were they resisting it? Mm-hmm. Um, who were they? Don't allow shame to come in. Shame has nothing to do with this. It might, you might have some guilt. Yeah. Sure. There might be some actual sure, guilt sure, in sure. terms of your family's complicity or, or benefit, benefiting, benefiting from, um, from these, uh, these laws mm-hmm. or actually passing being the ones to pass the law. You never know. Right. Yeah. But okay. Then you repent, then you repent on their behalf. Then you, you confess that and you do what our faith tells us to do, right? Like yeah. you do the thing That's right. um, that we, it's, it's basic. It's, it's, let's figure out a new way of living together in yeah. the world. Yeah. And, and you do that by doing the research, by actually embracing the truth. You know, and one of the things that struck me as I was writing the, the chapter on truth telling is that Jesus says, I am the truth. Mm -hmm. So when we embrace the truth, we are embracing Jesus. We are embracing the power of Jesus in our lives. Even if that truth brings guilt, if that truth makes our lives more complicated, guess what? That means we have to actually, I mean, exercise actual faith, right? right? We actually have to actually leverage the actual faith we have in God, a God who is for all of us, even those who sin. Hello, you're not like cast out of the love of God if, if you're found to have been in sin or your ancestors are found to have been in sin. No, yeah. that's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. Right. It gives us the ability to face that truth. So when we embrace the, the truth, we embrace Jesus. When we crush the truth, when we hide the truth, when we mask the truth, then we are crushing, hiding, and masking Jesus. That's right. Um, and repair is simply repentance, isn't it? It's just simply coming, coming to the table and saying, I am committed to doing this differently. And the number one thing that you can do differently is not to decide what needs to happen, but to go to those who were actually impacted by those laws and ask them and by the oppression, ask them like David does with the Gibeonites in second Samuel 21, one through 14, David um, is, is visited by the Gibeonites and says, and, uh, you know, and they're like, uh, Mr. David, um, you know, Saul tried to kill all of us and he wasn't supposed to do that, like commit genocide. And David goes, oh, that's why there's a drought in the land. And he could have done one of several things too. He had choices. He could have said, you know, I'm so sorry for you. 
peace out, right? Like, which mm-hmm. is basically what they've done to African-Americans. Right. You know, we they, they're like, we're so sorry for what happened to you. Peace out. Because we're the only people in American history that have never received reparations for, for the oppression done to us on American soil from, mm-hmm. the, from the federal government. Only once. David could have said to the Gibeonites, um, I'll get back to you. My counsel will figure this out. But if yeah. he had done that, he wouldn't have healed the relationship. Yeah. The relationship was broken the minute that Saul saw himself as God mm-hmm. and being worthy to determine the last day of the, of the Gibeonites and whether they should be here or not. Mm-hmm. See, the relationship was broken when, the, when they failed to see the image of God in the other. And the image of God means that they are created with the call and the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world and especially stewardship of their own lives and their own land and their own families. And so naturally then repair means placing that stewardship over this moment in the hands of the Gibeonites. And that's exactly what David does. David says, what do you say needs to be done in order for things to be made well with you? Yeah. And he tells, they tell him, they, they are ready. They came prepared. They already had their council meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And it's costly, but he does it without asking a one question. And we know how God feels about it because God lifts the drought. So good. We are just about out of time, but uh, this has been wonderful. Your book is wonderful. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor to be with you in conversation today. Thank you. And real quick, where can people go to connect with you and your work online? Want to point anybody to your website or? Sure. Yeah. LisaSharonHarper.com. You can find out more about the book there or an easier way to remember it is FortuneBook.us. FortuneBook.us. And also you can always follow me on social Lisa S. Harper on Instagram and Twitter and Lisa Sharon Harper on Facebook. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the show notes and I'm able to do this again sometime. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you too. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed something fancy. Wish you on a pot and so go with the rainbow by the time Clancy. Uh, wishing I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go and hit a run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other sandbox beating on my chest. Wishing for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own picture, we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So much with high on demand. Tiptoe around throwing high lows. Feel like James Brown, love, we go in here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got a hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lock. Champion, going ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG, train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wish I had red bottles on my feet. Everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride. Did this beat neat? Ever wanna follow my speed? Let's close those more keys. Hey. Carolina Rose on freeze. Hey. Wishing I could fly to the keys. Hey. That will be more free. Hey. Something in my mind hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Uh. 
Turn Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh, let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at the fall. We got a hands up, ready for box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had.